So I want to tell you about the legacy of a man named Alfred Vanderbilt. Uh, and Alfred Vanderbilt, you can probably tell from the last name, you might be able to make an educated guess of what social class this young man was from uh, when he lived about 100 years ago. He was a member of the Vanderbilt family, which was one of the richest American families at that time. Uh, his estimated net worth back in 1915 was the equivalent today of about $650 million, right? So not, not too shabby for a guy that was in his mid-30s at that point. Uh, yeah, pretty good, right? So this guy, he was just, he was only in his mid-30s, and he just had the world at his fingertips. He had influence, he had power, he had money beyond belief, but his legacy isn't really about any of those things. His legacy isn't about how much money he had, about the business ventures he uh, made profit on. It wasn't, that's not what his legacy is about. His legacy is all about a day that kind of lived in infamy in our history from the 20th century. The date was March, or May 7th, 1915. May 7th, 1915, he was actually uh, traveling across the Atlantic Ocean at that time on a British ocean liner named the Lusitania. Maybe you remember that from your history classes a long time ago. Because this particular ocean liner, as it was headed towards the UK, was intercepted by a German U-boat, and it was torpedoed and sunk. And from the time it was torpedoed to the time it sank into the water, it was only 18 minutes. And there were over 2,000 people on board, 1,200 of whom would die that day in the icy waters of the Atlantic. 18 minutes from the time the torpedo hit to the time it went into the water. And you can imagine what those 18 minutes must have looked like. There would have been chaos, confusion, and fear descending all across the entire ship. And as a first-class passenger and a man of his wealth and his stature, he would have been afforded a life jacket and a spot in the lifeboats, which there weren't near enough for everybody else. But what he chose to do kind of defined his legacy in the last few moments of his life. During those 18 minutes, he refused to get into the lifeboat, but instead he helped countless other people get into their lifeboats. And then the last thing that is recorded of someone seeing him right before the ship went down was he encountered a mother with a young baby, about maybe a year old, and he was taking off his life vest, putting it around the mother and fastening it in the back. Alfred couldn't swim. The boat went down and Alfred, Alfred died. Alfred knew what it meant to be selfless and sacrificial. He understood what it meant to save other people through his heroism and, and that idea of putting the needs of other people before his own. He understood what it meant to be selfless and he gives a great picture of what our passage is going to be talking about tonight putting the needs of other people before our own. Now, I want us to think about that picture and then contrast it with another news article that I read a few months ago. This news article was talking about a lady named Susan who was flying from, uh, she was flying from uh, JFK uh, out to the out to the western one of the western states, and as she was boarding the plane, she was one of the. This is not our Susan, by the way. Just clarifying. As she's boarding the plane, she's one of the last people to make it onto the plane, and she is not happy when she gets her seat assignment and realizes she's in the back of the plane. 
So she moves her way back to the back of the plane, and then she looks over and realizes she's sitting next to a mother with a young baby, and she starts throwing a fit, which is all recorded on a video. She starts a profanity-laden fit and talks about how she's refusing to sit next to this mom with this crying baby that's going to cry the whole way. And the mom says, I can promise you the baby's not going to cry. Can you watch your language a little bit? And the woman just has a tirade and demands to speak to a flight attendant. So the flight attendant comes over, and she says, what's going on? And she says, I demand to be upgraded. I'm entitled to a better seat. And the woman's like, no, this is your seat. Sorry, you're just going to have to sit there. And the woman responds to her and says, what's your name? And the lady says, Tabitha. And in the video, you can hear her say, thank you, Tabitha. You're not going to have a job tomorrow. I work for the governor. <laughs> so super snotty, just a really angry woman, right? So I work for the governor. And the woman just looks at her and says, get off the plane. And then she's, no, 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 I have to be on this flight. She starts back really day. So they kick her off the plane, and she actually wound up losing her job for all of this because the governor wasn't super happy to see that kind of behavior, right? <laughs> but think about those two contrasting pictures. You have one person who sees a mother and a child, and he's moved with compassion, and he's moved with grace, and he's moved with a desire to sacrifice what he needs to better her. And then you have another woman who looks and sees a mother and a child, and what does she see? A nuisance, an inconvenience, something that's getting in the way of what I want. You have one person who's selfless and sacrificial, and another person who's entitled and arrogant and prideful. Now, I don't know about you, but I would rather be known as an Alfred than a Susan. Once again, Susan, no, 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 no diss to you. But here's the thing. The culture we live in tends to reflect the entitled, self-serving, arrogant attitude of a Susan. It's rare to encounter a person with the humble, sacrificial attitude of, of Alfred. But our passage makes it really clear today that the, if you bear the identity of a Christ follower, you are called to have that sacrificial, selfless, humble attitude that Christ himself had. So with that preface in mind, go ahead, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Philippians chapter 2. And I'm just going to read the first five verses together. It says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ... If there's any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy. Make me happy, Paul is saying, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, if there's one passage in the New Testament that's most out of step with the American culture that we live in, this would probably be one of the top contenders. Because the culture we live in doesn't like the idea of being selfless or sacrificial. Instead, we live in a culture that thrives on pride, scandal, and self-promotion. It really does. Honestly, we live in a culture that's best captured by a fast food motto, which is up here on the screen. Burger King, right? This is kind of their old one that used to be plastered in the, in the stores. Have it your way. You have the right to have what you want exactly when you want it. Because on the menu of life, you are today's special. And tomorrow's, and the next day, and, and you get it. Well, maybe you get the drift. That's right. We may be the king, but you, my friend, are the almighty ruler, right? So that's their motto. You're the almighty ruler. And that makes Americans pretty happy. 
have it my way, however I want, whenever I want it, I'm the almighty ruler. Check, 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 right? That's what Americans like to hear. That's the world that we live in. And that's one of the reasons that the culture that we live in is so divided because selfishness, self-centeredness, and all the things that go with it, it only produces narcissism, jealousy, rivalry, anger, arrogance, and it breaks our relationships apart. Real community, real relationships are built on the foundation of humility. True joy is found in serving other people, not being served. Jesus wasn't being snarky or sarcastic when he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He meant what he said there, but so many of us don't believe that to be true. And if we're going to imitate the character of Christ, one of the greatest characteristics we need to imitate is his immense humility. And that really brings us to the big idea of today's passage. Humility produces unity, and unity builds community. So that's really what's going on here. Humility, it, it produces unity, and when we're unified, it builds a true Christian community. Because the world we live in, it really operates in kind of that dog-eat-dog mindset. Everybody's a competition to be beat. Every person is an obstacle in the way of my happiness. But instead, we are called to go out of our way not to be served, but to serve and love other people. We are called not to stir disunity and division, but instead to strive to live harmoniously and united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We live in a world that's deeply divided by a whole host of issues. We live in a world that's divided by political affiliation, by ethnicity, by social class, by living in urban versus rural, or red versus blue, or white collar versus blue collar, whatever it is. But the church has been designed and crafted by Christ to be the place where those things that divide the world no longer divide the people of God. I'm reminded in the book of Galatians chapter 3 where Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In that verse, Paul isn't saying that there's actually not Jews or Gentiles or, or slaves or free people or, or, or men or women. He's not saying that literally. He's saying that those things that used to divide, Jews and Gentiles hated each other. Men and women were in conflict. Uh, uh, there was all this division in the world. He said those things that divided the culture, that has no place in the Christ-centered community in the church. One of the most powerful witnesses for the truth of the gospel should be the unbelievable unity that people observe within the bride of Christ. The American church needs to hear this lesson. We need to hear this lesson. So with the rest of our time tonight, we're going to look at the motivation for a community defined by unity. We're going to look at the marks of a community defined by unity. And then we're going to see the method for constructing a community defined by unity. So let's start with the motivation in our passage. Verse number one. In our first verse, Paul gives an inspiring recap of some of the blessings that we have experienced through our salvation. And these amazing blessings, Paul is saying, should fill our hearts with gratitude and thankfulness and then lead us into hearts of humility and love. So he starts off by saying, so if there is, and then he gives this list of four things. But a better translation really would be because you've experienced these things. This is kind of a, a rhetorical device in 
Greek where you're asking a question where the assumed answer by all the readers is, I have. So he's saying, you have experienced encouragement in Christ. You have experienced comfort from the love of Christ. You have participated in the spirit. You have received affection and sympathy. So do these things. He's giving the motivation. So let's look at each of those four things and see the motivation that Paul is supplying because they are awesome. These are four of the many blessings that we experience when we become children of God. The first one is this. He says, remember the comfort and the consolation that you found in Jesus. Paul is talking here about our initial salvation. He's saying, remember what it was like before you were Christian and you were crippled by your sin by your guilt, by your shame, by all the things that weighed you down. And you knew there was something missing. You knew there was something wrong in your life. And it was agony. It was painful. And remember how sweet it was the day that you put your faith in Christ and you got to lay that burden down at the cross and it vanished and it never comes back again. Your sins, past, present, and future were all forgiven and nailed to the cross. He says, remember the comfort that you had of knowing that you were finally made right with your creator and you had eternal life through Jesus Christ. He says, remember that. This should be the best day of our lives. The day that we were free from all the brokenness and all the shame and all the guilt. He says, remember that. Then the second thing, he says, remember the love, the continual relentless love that God showers upon you day in and day out. We talked about this last week at Young Adults, talking about the love of the, of the father for his younger son in the parable of the prodigal son. And we define the love as being a relentless, radical love that defies human expectations. And that's so true. He says, remember the way that God loves you. Not just the initial love, but the way that he loves you every single day. So often I go back to Romans chapter 8 and counsel myself with the beauty of those words when I'm going through a hard season, when I look at my life and I think, I am just so unlovable. Why would God care about me? I'm reminded by those words in Romans 8 that if God is for me, who can stand against me? I'm reminded at the end of the chapter where he says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Whether it's death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in creation can separate us, separate me from the the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a reminder that whatever season or whatever difficulty or whatever thing we're going through in this world, we don't have to doubt whether God's love for us has changed. He loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. But third, we need to remember the work or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul is reminding us that when we become Christ followers, when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, comes to dwell within us for the rest of our lives to help us on our spiritual journey. The Holy Spirit comforts us and cries out in our hearts, Abba, Father, reminding us that we're children of God. The Holy Spirit helps us resist the temptations and the schemes of the devil on the days it just seems so hard to say no to sin. The Holy Spirit promises that if we are striving to obey the Lord through the spiritual disciplines, by reading our Bible, by worshiping, by praying, he's going to bear fruit in our lives to where we're going to see ourselves being more loving, joyful, patient, kind, good, gentle, self-controlled, all those things as well. 
The Holy Spirit lives within us. So on those days when we doubt that God's still there, when it's tempting to doubt the promise that God said, I will never leave you or forsake you, we know that he meant it because the Holy Spirit is with us no matter what. He says, remember the gift that you've been given through the Holy Spirit. But then fourth, he says, remember the affection and the sympathy that you've been shown. Now that word affection or compassion there, it's kind of a gross word. In the Greek, it's bowels. Like it's based off the word for bowels. Kind of seems a little weird. Like bowels, affection. That makes a lot of sense, right? Like I have such bowels for you. Weird, right? That's not, not a pleasant image. But what this is actually talking about, it's a euphemism for the idea of, of this gut-wrenching compassion and emotion you feel for another person. The type that just moves you to your core. And it's saying Jesus had such compassion, such tender sympathy when he looked on our helpless plight, when we were trapped in our sin and our brokenness, that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to come and sacrifice himself and die on the cross so that we could be freed from our sins. And we recognize that Jesus loved us and was that moved with compassion. How can we not trust him each and every day of our lives for the smaller things? If he loved us that much and he's in control now, even when life is hard, we can say, you know what? Jesus has this. If he loved me enough to die for me, I think he loves me enough to direct my life in the way that it should go as well. So in this first section about the motivation, Paul, Paul is saying reflect on these incredible benefits of salvation, these blessings that you have experienced from the love of God. And the love that we experience, it's not deserved. It's not merited. We did nothing to deserve it. He says, but God still showed it to you. So then, he says, who are you not to show it to one another? If God loved you that much, when you didn't deserve it, when you were trapped in your sin, when you disobeyed him, when you broke his commands, and he still loved you. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, right? He says, who are you not to show that same kind of love and tender compassion and care for one another? And that brings us to the marks of a community defined by unity. God is telling us this is what the church should and must look like. This is what a true Christian community should be identified in the world. And that's so important because it's a radical reversal of the culture we live in. We live in a culture of selfishness, of abuse and inequality. And God says those are so out of step with the gospel. When we really live out the gospel, we are going to be part of a, a body of Christ that's bound together through a shared faith that leaves us to love one another, to sacrifice for one another, to serve one another. So look at verse 2. Here's the things, the marks of a community defined by unity. He says, complete my joy of being of the same mind. And it's the same word that he says at the end uh, and being of one mind. Those are kind of bookends. They're the same thing. Same mind, one mind. Second, having the same love. Third, being in full accord. We need to understand what those words mean. But the first one starts off with this bookend of we need to be of one mind and the same mind. Essentially, this is what Paul is saying. To be part of the Christian community, to be part of the church, you have a shared mission statement for your life. To where your highest priority in life is going to be the same highest priority as your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're of one mind. You're focused on the same goal. What is that goal? Matthew 28, to go and make disciples of all nations, right? To, go, to make disciples for the glory of God. He says that is our primary purpose, that God has redeemed us and saved us to accomplish. And here's the reality. We're better together at doing that. 
we're far more effective when we're united around that cause. When churches are in unity, when brothers and sisters in Christ are linking arms and praying and going out, that's when communities are impacted and transformed by the gospel. We're better together. Recently, I've been doing some uh, landscaping at my, at my house. And I'm not much of a landscaper, but I've been trying to re- rip out some old stuff and take out the old mulch and put some new stuff down. And there's this one section on the side of my house that it's probably like a, maybe a 12-foot section, about two feet wide, where I took everything out and got back down the dirt, planted a couple things, and then put mulch down. And within one weekend, I'm not kidding you, there was an invasion of ants. And the entire section turned into one gigantic anthill, 12 feet of anthill in one weekend. I have no, like literally my mulch was covered in anthills. I have no idea what happened. So I took boiling soap water and got rid of the ants, but, but it was terrible. Like these ants were just attacking everything. Like it, I had no idea why. Well, well, how were they able to do that? Well, if you know anything about ants, what do they prioritize above all else? Furthering the colony and doing the good for the colony, doing the best thing for the colony. They work together. They sacrifice their individual needs for the good of the community, right? It's kind of idea for us. Christ says that we are to sacrifice our individual needs for the good of the kingdom. Building and expanding the kingdom is our highest goal and our highest priority. That is so, so important. And that's one of the reasons... That's our primary focus. That, that is the major. That's the biggest thing in our lives. And that's one of the reasons that Satan loves to get us off mission and focused on the secondary issues. Because the moment he can get us in conflict and dividing over foolish things is the moment we stop being effective for the gospel in our community. The moment that we start focusing on secondary theological issues and we get all up in arms about uh, which eschatology you believe in or which Bible translation you believe in or all these things, and we start bickering about that, we lose sight of the main thing. Satan loves when churches care more about getting their way with a building project and they're fighting rather than building up each other to look like the image of Christ. Satan loves it when we bicker about worship songs and what type of music to listen to and is there too much haze, is there too much light or this or that, I like hymns or all these things rather than actually focusing on worshiping God. Satan loves when we divide over those small things. And that might seem kind of obvious, but I've grown up and I was in churches that divided over each and every one of those things and split. And that was one of the biggest obstacles for me, when I grew up to coming to know the Lord, because I saw the foolish things that Christians divided over. Let that not be us. We major on the majors, right? We focus on the gospel. We focus on salvation by faith in Christ alone. We're going to be unified together with other gospel-preaching churches to reach this Wausau community for Christ. It's one of my favorite things about young adults. We have so many different churches represented here on a Monday night, and I love that. It's showing that, you know what, you don't have to be the same denomination. We all believe in the same gospel. So we're going to go out into our churches, into our community, and reach people with the love of Christ. We stay focused on the same things. Second, we're called to show the same love. We're called to show the same love. Now, how are we to interpret that word? What does that mean, show the same love? Really what Paul's saying there is this. We need to show identical love, meaning that we shouldn't have favoritism, And we shouldn't have partiality within the body of Christ. Now, the world operates that way. It's normal to treat people differently. 
based on their appearance, based on their social standing, their ethnicity, their wealth. It's how the world operates, right? I was reminded of this last summer when my wife and I were in uh, Chicago for the weekend and we were going into Millennium Park for, they were having like a, a symphony concert that, that night and we were walking through security and there's this new uh, security guard. He's obviously new and being trained by an older guy. And as we're walking through the security line, I get pulled over and he's like, sir, the new guy says, sir, I need to come over here and you need to get the wand and all this kind of stuff. I, for some reason, I always get pulled over, but that's a story for a different time. So I get pulled over, but we were coming from a meeting, so I had a nice suit on and everything that day. And the older trainer looked over him and said, what are you doing? And smacked him. And he said, what? He goes, that's not the type of person we're looking for. Sorry to inconvenience you, sir. And let me walk right through, Right? That's normal for the world we live in. We look at appearances, we make a judgment, and then we treat people differently. That's not how the church should operate. James was so upset about this that in his letter when he was writing to the Jews of the dispersia that he said, don't you dare show partiality to people when they come into worship. He said, if a rich man that wears gold and has nice clothes comes in and then there's a poor man who's dressed badly and you give the good chair to the rich guy and you tell this, the poor guy to stand in the back or sit at the feet, he says, you have had evil intentions and you have judged them wrongly. Don't do that. The church should be a safe haven from the partiality, the prejudice, and the favoritism that's so common in the world. When people walk in here, they should know that they are loved, that they are welcomed, and that we want them to know the truth of God's love for them. One of our greatest desires for Monday nights, whether it's this service or young adults, is to craft and create a Christ-centered community where people and young adults can feel like they belong and they're cared for and they're loved and especially loved in, in Christ. And we have so many leaders and so many incredible young adults who make sure that happens. But you know, that's just not the norm for churches in America. There's a lot of churches in America that are known for being cold. They're known for being unwelcoming and they're known for just being really clicky. And we don't, that what, a, what a disservice that does to the gospel. A particular story that stuck with me for years when I was a high school pastor out in California, there was this one young man who stopped attending our group. And I didn't catch everyone that stopped attending because it was, it was a large group. There's about 250 high schoolers. But I noticed this one particular guy stopped coming. So I reached out to him to grab lunch and we sat down and connected, and I hadn't seen him for about two months. And I, I asked him, I said, hey, well, you know, what's going on? I haven't seen you for, for a while. And as I was talking with him, it, it broke my heart. And he said, you know, I'm in my junior year. I've been trying to come to youth group for three years, and not one person has ever had a conversation longer than one minute with me. He said, it's not like I'm, he's like, I, I know the people that complain that don't try. He's like, I try. He's like, I go up, I ask questions. People kind of do the nice, like, oh, yeah, hey. And then they just kind of turn their backs and talk with their friends. He goes, I've been trying for three years. I'm just exhausted. He said, so I'm, I'm just, youth group's not really for me. I'm done. And that, that just broke, that just, that just broke my heart. Because he was a great kid. He was a great kid. And he wanted community. He wanted to belong. But no one was prioritizing his needs above their own needs. Because everyone just wanted to be with their friends, right? Isn't that the worst thing? When people make it very apparent to you that you don't belong. <laughs> That's one of the most uncomfortable feelings. Pastor Jared and I actually had a uh, story like that recently where it was very apparent when we, that we didn't belong. We were over in Rome for the Highland trip where we went over to Rome, and it was a day that it was just pouring rain, so Jared has this, like, 
big rain slicker on and his umbrella. It just looks like a goof, right? And I've got like my casual wear on and stuff. And we're walking through this nice street. And one of the people in our group is like, oh, Louis Vuitton store. We should just go in there and see how much stuff costs. So we're like, oh, sure. So me and Jared walk in. The moment we walk in, the salespeople just go. And walk away. They didn't even say anything. <laughs> Not even a hello or anything. They, they totally were saying, like, get out of here. <laughs> like, you can't afford anything in this store, right? You don't belong. Well, that's one of the worst feelings in the world. It's one of the worst feelings in the world. But who are the people in our spheres that we're tempted to treat like that? And either obviously or, or maybe even just passively show that you really don't belong here and you're not that significant. Who are the people in our communities that are in the fringes longing to belong? Who are the people that when they walk into the room, we know maybe they're a little bit needy, they're a little bit hard to talk to, so we run like the plague and avoid them because we don't want to uh, sacrifice what we want to do that evening. Who are the people that God is having cross our paths that we can reach out with, with love? True biblical love is not a feeling, it's an action, right? And those are the moments of when the feeling's not there, what am I going to choose to do? Am I going to choose to set aside what I want and prioritize what's most important? Or am I just going to go back and always fulfill what my greatest desire is? That's the second thing. The third thing is this. We need to live in full accord with one another. This expression translated full accord is actually kind of a unique idiom in this passage. It literally means one sold. One, like soul, S-O-U-L, one-souled or one-spirited. It's this idea of having a deep and uh, strong friendship and bond with one or other people. It's the same word that you see in the Old Testament of David and Jonathan, that their souls were knit together, and Jonathan loved David like his own soul. It's the idea that we need to have this intentionality and depth in the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And what that means is that when we are gathering together, whether it's young adults, whether it's here, whether it's on Sundays or in life groups, we are going to be intentional to move past just the small talk and the, the little things of life and really dig into our lives with each other and say, how, how can I help you grow? What can I pray for? How are you doing? It takes vulnerability. It takes accountability. And the biggest lesson from this is that you can't be an island and be a Christian. There's no such thing as a churchless Christian. You are part of of the body of Christ. You have to be part of that body. It's so important. It's so imperative. You can't be one sold and just isolate yourself. I think a good picture of this is something called the pando tree. Has anybody ever heard of the pando tree? No? Okay. So this is actually the largest living organism in the world. This is one tree that covers over 106 acres. This is one tree with an interconnected root system in Colorado, and then it just has different stems that shoot up over time. And there's 40,000 different stems, but genetically, they are identical, and it spreads by sending its roots out and shooting up another tree. One living organism that covers 106 acres of land. Largest living organism in the world. There you go. Trivial pursuit for the day, right? But I like that. I like that because I think this is a great picture of what the church is supposed to be. We're one soul. We're part of one body. Christ is the head of the body. We're different pieces of the body. We're different stems. We're gifted in different ways, but we're interconnected so that when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. When one part of the body rejoices, we all rejoice together. We need one another. 
So if that's the goal of what Christian community should look like, then how do we get there? How do we construct this type of community? Well, that's the third thing that we see, the method for constructing a community defined by unity. And that's in verses three through five. In this section, Paul moves into some heavy hitting imperatives. He says, do these things. These are commands. These aren't suggestions. These aren't optional. These are things that if you're a Christ follower, you need to take seriously. He says this, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Don't just look to your own interests, but look to the interests of others and have this mind which is among you, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he gives us a few things there. But the first one is this. He says, if you want to be this kind of community, you're going to have to learn to battle selfish ambition. That's hard. Selfish ambition is putting myself above other people and my needs first. So that means when I come home, and I just want to loaf on the couch, but I can tell that the kids and uh, my spouse had a hard day and they really need to talk and then they really need a parent and they really need involvement. Rather than loafing on the couch, what am I going to do? I'm going to do my duty as a spouse and as a father. That means as a coworker, when I'm tempted to take all the credit for a team project because I want to look good to the employers, what am I going to do? I'm going to compliment and lift up the other people that were my team and not take all the credit for myself. That means when that person that gives me a phone call, that's just sometimes it's like a 40-minute phone call and I just want to hit decline and I don't want to answer because I really just want to do my thing tonight. What am I going to do? I'm going to answer the phone call because it might be something really important, right? That means when I'm protective of my time on the weekends and a friend calls and they need help moving or there's something going on at church, am I going to be possessive of my time or am I going to stop and say, you know what, I can sacrifice that and, and help this person first. We need to fight selfish ambition. And it's really hard when we live in a Burger King culture that says, have life your way, do whatever you want. Not only selfish ambition, we also need to fight conceit, vainglory. Really, this idea of conceit means we need to battle having big egos. <laughs> we need to battle having a preoccupation with our own prominence. That means this idea of conceit means I'm doing things to build up how other people view me so I feel good about myself, right? And the, the problem is we do this because our identity winds up being in all the wrong things. Our identity winds up being, uh, being grounded in I'm the best at something or I'm the most popular or all these things. But hear me, your identity, your value, your worth, if you are a Christ follower, is not in your performance or your popularity. Your identity is a child of God. Your identity is in the child of God. If your identity is a child of God, don't you see how selfish ambition and conceit just kind of fall away? I don't need to have selfish ambition if God's my father because I know that he's going to take care of all my needs and I can trust him. I don't need to inflate my ego because it doesn't matter what other people think because I know what God thinks and his opinion is the only one that matters. It really doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. I can trust that what God says about me is true. But the only way we're going to battle our conceit and our selfish ambition is to embrace humility, which means viewing other people as more significant than ourselves. I know it's a trite saying, but it's true. Humility isn't thinking less of myself, but it's thinking of myself less, right? We all know that, but it's so true. Humility is grounded in that idea that I'm not being down on myself all the time, but I'm just getting over myself and saying, you know, there's a whole other world that needs help. 
There's a lot of people that need love. There's a lot of people that need to be served. I don't have to be preoccupied with, with myself. It's the ability to look past ourselves and see the inherent worth and value of other people. It's learning to put God at the center of our lives. Other people come next, and then ourselves come last. That's the only order for our lives that produces true joy, true satisfaction, and true purpose in our lives. And notice how we cultivate the mindset of humility. It says right here in verse 5, we have the mind of Jesus. We have to look daily to Jesus' example that he set for us. Because as the rest of this passage would unpack if we had time to go through the rest of it, it says that Jesus, who is in the form of God, thought it not, uh, he, he didn't think that equality with God was a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant, becoming like man, right? So this idea that Jesus, who is God himself, the creator, the Lord of the universe, he came down and took on flesh. He bore our sins. He died on the cross. He washed the disciples' feet. He healed the brokenhearted. Jesus did all these things. He served us. And if Jesus, the king of the universe, would do that for us, how can we not selflessly and sacrificially serve one another? So in closing tonight, how do we apply these, how do we apply these things? You got the cue that time, Sam. That was good. That was good. How do we reply, apply these things? First, first, if you haven't ever responded to the gospel, if that first verse you haven't experienced, you haven't experienced those things yet, where it talks about the comfort that we have in Christ, the love that we have, the fellowship in the spirit, you're missing out. Make sure today before you leave here to repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ and enjoy those blessings and be part of the best community and the best family possible. But the second thing is this. If, we've been demonst- if, if we have been given so much radical, relentless love by God, you have to make sure to show radical, relentless love to other people. I have a picture up here. Um, I have a picture up here because this is, uh, I took this when I was over in Ethiopia last fall on a mission trip. And I was working with uh, young men and women that were training to be missionaries at a missionary training school over in Ethiopia. And the school was down in this neck of the woods and this house that you see was up here. And this house was a missionary house. And the missionaries that had just lived their last, the first thing that they did was install that gate in front of their house. The husband was down there teaching at the schools, teaching them theology, teaching them about the Bible. But there's a big difference between knowing a lot about God and reflecting the character and the kindness of Jesus. The first thing that they did was build a gate because the husband and wife didn't like the kids coming and running around in their yard and they didn't like all the frequent visits from the Ethiopian people. And they just kind of wanted to isolate themselves, go down into the village and then run back and hide behind their gate. I took that picture because I said, that is the worst possible thing you could ever do as a missionary. But how many of us live behind the gate as Christians? We know a lot about God. We're happy to go and tell other people and share what we believe in our thing. But when it comes to opening up the gate and letting people come into our lives and into our homes and into our little spheres, well, that's a little bit uncomfortable. They can just kind of stay outside there and I'll go meet them. Being a Christ follower means opening the gate. There are broken and hurting people in our community that need the Lord. Selflessness is what Christ commands of us. We have to imitate the character of our Lord. So let's keep that image in our mind as we close in a word of prayer. Father, 
This is a challenging passage. This convicts us in so many ways because it's so easy to fall short of these things day in and day out. Even as I was preparing this sermon this week, I was just confronted by the many different ways that I fall short of showing this type of sacrificial, selfless love to those around me. Father, help us to do better. Help your bride to do better. Help your church to do better. In a world that's increasingly divided and broken, help us to show that through the gospel, you can heal every wound, you can stitch back together what's broken, and you can give us a true family. So Father, if there's anybody here tonight that has never accepted you, I just pray that tonight's the night that they give their life to you. And now as we sing a song of response, be glorified with our words. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.